begin with several questions uh, before we actually look at our passage for this morning. The first questions I want to address are uh, to those that would consider themselves a Christian. Have you ever wondered how much time you should spend with those who do not have faith in Jesus Christ, or even if you should spend any time with them? And then my next set of questions is for those who who might not be Christians, or even if you are a Christian, you may have thought about this before. Have you ever wondered if there's really any difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Does it really matter what you believe? Is a Christian just some religious fanatic that likes to follow rules? And that's it. We're going to find those questions are answered in our our text this morning. And as Pastor Dave just read for us, our text is Psalm 119, 113 through 120. And this is the 15th section out of 22 uh, sections in Psalm 119. And we see uh, a zeroing in on a set of main characters that is that they've been talked about in Psalm 119, and we've certainly learned a lot about them. If, if um, you've been here when I've preached through Psalm 119, or if you've read through it before, um, we've heard a lot about these, this set of main characters in Psalm 119 uh, before. The writer of Psalm 119 himself has been really on display throughout Psalm 119. He's been pouring his heart out to God as a prayer, and we've heard about his sufferings. We've heard about the persecutions that he's, he's dealt with, and now he speaks of these persecutors in our section of Psalm 119 uh, this morning. We find who they really are, how they relate to God, how they live, how he interacts with them, and even uh, what their end will be. Our section this morning uh, has an interesting structure to it, and you might not really be able to tell at first uh, as you look at um, this section or as Pastor Dave read it for us, but the second half of Psalm 119, 113 to 120 actually mirrors the first half. So what we have in the first half um, is somewhat either repeated or we get some similar things in the second half. And if you just glance over these verses, we'll see that verses 113 and 114, which are the first two verses, they connect to or they go with the last two verses, verses 119 and 120. Verse 115 and verse 118, they go together. And then verse 116 and 117, they go together. So when I say the haves mirror each other or these verses go together, I mean that they're talking about similar things or they connect Uh, with each other. And I think the psalmist does this on purpose. He has it structured this way to bring out something in specific, and that is the distance that should be between one who loves the word and one who does not. And then second, the difference between one who loves the word and one who does not. So that's going to be our theme for this morning. Uh, The main idea or summing up this text of Psalm 119, our theme is the distance and the difference between one who loves the Word of God and one who does not. Our theme is the distance and the difference between one who does not, one who loves the Word of God and one who does not. So the psalmist begins by speaking of what he rejects and what he treasures. Look with me at Psalm 119, 113. It says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. So the psalmist begins speaking about something he hates and something he loves, something he despises and rejects, and something that he values and he treasures. He says he hates the double-minded. 
The word double-minded speaks of something that is divided or disunited. And here specifically it's talking about a person. A person who's divided or a person who's not united. Meaning that this is a person, he's talking about a person who's divided in their allegiances. Someone who might claim to believe in God, but then live contrary to his word. Someone who might follow some of God's commands, but not them all. Someone who might obey God sometimes, but not other times. Or in certain situations, around certain people, but not all. When the psalmist says he hates this person, he see, um, from the rest of the passage, it seems like he's saying that ultimately he's rejecting or he's despising the way in which they live. He's, he's rejecting their lifestyle rather than them as a person. He's not saying he wants to kill that person or he wants to see the worst for them, but he seems to be speaking against their way of living. And we're going to see that in a couple verses down um, is the reason I take it that way. But the psalmist is speaking of people who live in this way and they don't care. All right? They're double-minded. They don't live consistently following the Lord and they don't care. They intentionally live this double-minded lifestyle. These are the evildoers. These are the wicked people that he's going to refer to in the rest of this section. And he's saying that they're double-minded. So the application I want to bring out right away from this, this first verse and this, even this first phrase is I want to apply this right off the bat um, as the reality is that it is very, very hard not to be double-minded. Even as a Christian, to be divided in your allegiances, to be inconsistent in your obedience, to only follow some of God's commands, to expect something maybe of someone else, you expect them to do this, and then you go against that very thing. To act and speak one way at church in a completely different way with your family. We all sitting here this morning who would claim to be Christians are guilty of being double-minded. It's impossible to be consistent. We're hypocrites at times. So this first line of this section should catch our attention and it should cause us to evaluate our lives and to say, are we double-minded? Or how are we double-minded? How are we divided in our allegiances? Where might not we be following God at all times? And then as we evaluate, we should repent. We should repent of these things, ask God for forgiveness of these things on a daily basis. So it's good as we think about this first phrase of uh, this section for to couch our attention and evaluate our lives. But as I already mentioned, when he speaks of this double-mindedness, he's not talking about those who would repent. He's not talking about a Christian or someone who has a relationship with God and is guilty of these things and repents of them and tries not to live in this way, but he's talking about someone uh, who doesn't care or intentionally does this. He's talking about an unbeliever who maybe acts like a Christian or acts like he cares about God and his word, but absolutely does not. So that is what he hates and he despises, living in a way that is not fully committed to the Lord and his word. But then he says, if you look at the second half um, of verse 113, we see what he loves. It says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. So he despises the ways of those who are double-minded, but he loves God's word. He values it. He treasures it. And we actually already looked at, or in Psalm 119, there was already a section that really uh, delved into what does it look like to love the Word of God. And that was in Psalm 119, 97, 
through 104. So several sections before ours, and today's section kind of just adds on top of that. It, it delves further into um, what does it look like to really love the Word of God. So we'll move on to the next verse, which speaks of how the psalmist views and how he treats the Word of God. If you look with me at Psalm 119, it says, You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. So the, the psalmist declares that God is his protection. That God is his protection from this first line. And he gives two word pictures to describe it in this first line. He says, you're my hiding place. And then second, my shield. My hiding place. My hiding place speaks of a shelter. We can think of a shelter the shelter we have and how it protects us, how our home, so your house, it protects you from stor storms, it, it protects you from extreme heat, extreme cold. Maybe an umbrella on a beach is your shelter on the beach that protects you from the scorching sun. I think about a time in my life when I went on a camping trip and 70 mile per hour winds and rain ripped across our campsite and all we had for shelter was our kitchen tarp that all of the guys on this camping trip we're, high, or we're huddling under. That was our shelter. These things protect us. But the psalmist also speaks of a shield. He says, you are my hiding place and my shield. And, and back in the day, a shield was used for protection against swords, against arrows uh, in battle. That was the protection for a warrior. So he's using these things to create a picture for us and saying, God is his hiding place. It's his shelter. It's his protection is the idea he's trying to get across. But he takes this one step further, and, and he shows how this relates to the Word of God. Again, in verse 114, the second half says, I hope in your Word. So the psalmist is saying he runs to God's Word for protection, just like we might run to our basement when a tornado's coming, or we might make our way to our cars when a storm is about to strike, so too he runs to the Word of God for protection. And this word hope in verse 114 is actually a loaded word. There's a lot more in it than you might assume. This word hope speaks of a waiting. It speaks of patiently waiting in God's word. So through difficulty, through uh, discouragements and suffering, even for a long time, the idea here is that he's waiting for God's word to be established. Trusting in what God has said and what he has promised. So God and his word are a refuge. They're a safe place for the psalmist to go. He finds safety and protection there. And two further comments I just want to make on verse 114. The first is, um, even if you just skip ahead and you can just glance at the last verse of our section, we see another way in which um, the psalmist says he views the word of God. And if you just read over that verse, it might almost seem to clash with what he says here. And we're going to look into this a lot more when we get to this last verse, but we're going to see that it almost seems like there's a clash in how he views God's word between these two things, um, and we'll look at that towards the end of the message. But the second comment I want to make about verse 114 is that we see verse 114 connects both to the verse before it and the verse after it. As in both, the psalmist is saying he rejects, and he doesn't want to be around those who do not love the Word of God, who don't follow the Word of God. And we'll see he literally tells them um, to get away from him in the next verse. But here in verse 114, he's saying who he wants to be close to. All right, In the, the verse before it and the verse after it, he says who he wants to get away from. 
whose ways he rejects. And now in our verse, he's saying who he wants to spend time around, who he wants to be with, and that is God and his word. So the application for us, as we consider verse 114, is is God and his word what you look to for protection? Do you hope? Do you trust in what God has promised, even when the situation you're going through is showing you something very different? Okay, it almost seems to, to run contrary to the word of God and what he's promised. You hope and trust in the word of God. And even when people around you, even Christians are giving you counsel that goes against God and his word, doesn't align with the word of God, do you stay close to God and his word? Is that your protection? Is that what you run to as your shelter and your shield you hide behind as you suffer? So the psalmist has just spoke about who he wants to be close to, and now as we go to verse 115, he says who he wants to stay away from. Look with me at Psalm 119, 115. It says, depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. So here, here the psalmist tells the evildoer, the one who doesn't want to follow the word of God, he says, depart from me. He's saying, turn aside from me, stay away from me, which seems like a rude thing to say. All right, but we find the reason. It's not a rude thing to say, but it's ultimately out of his desire to obey the word of God. Look again at 1.15. It says, depart from me, you evildoers. And then here's the reason that I may keep the commandments of my God. The psalmist wants to follow God's word, and he sees these evildoers as a threat uh, to doing that. In school, um, or at least I remember growing up, especially in elementary school, you hear a lot about peer pressure, all right? It's talked about a lot, and here we find it's a real thing even for adults. It can be tempting, and, and we may not even be aware of it, that when you're around an unbeliever, we can start to live how they live, act as they act, speak as they speak. You might do things you wouldn't do around Christians or when you were alone, but different temptations may arise when you're, you're with someone who doesn't love the Word of God, who doesn't love God or have a relationship uh, with God. And this seems to be what the psalmist is talking about here in verse 115. He wants to obey God's word, and it would be difficult to do so when those who don't care about and rebel against God and his word are around. So I want to pause for a moment um, and consider these three verses that we've looked at so far. Okay, we see the psalmist, what I would say is he's distancing himself. Uh, from those who don't follow the word of God. And we see the psalmist uh, wants to get closer to God and his word. And I said in the beginning that we'd see the psalmist distancing himself from unbelievers, and we'd see the differences between the two. And here in these first three verses, we get this distancing aspect. And the question we should ask is, what does this look like practically? All right, so we can talk about not being um, with unbelievers or getting away from them, but what does this actually look like practically? How can we do what the psalmist is doing here in this section? We might even consider, should we interact with them at all? Can you not have unbelieving friends? Or does the psalmist's example not apply to us? Is he just being overcautious? Okay, when we think about this, the reality is, we think about doing this practically, the reality is, you work with unbelievers. Kids, when you're in school, if you go to a, pu a public or even a private school, you'll have classes, you'll have clubs, you'll be in sports with unbelievers. 
College students, you'll go to college with unbelievers. Many of us have family members who do not believe in Jesus Christ. So we can't just say, depart from me, you evildoers, and then never see them again. We also, as Christians, are called to share the gospel with unbelievers. All right, so in one sense, we must interact with unbelievers, and in another, we must be very, very careful. There's a fine line, even there's some gray areas as we talk about doing this practically. So I want to give you several practical ways of living out these first three verses. First, you have to start with rejecting and, and being against and hating sin. All right? Not necessarily that unbeliever, we're not saying hate them, but sin in general. Realizing that that is not the way to go. Rejecting it, being against it, seeking not to live a sinful life. Second, you have to be very aware if you are starting to get drawn in to their sinful conduct. If it's a temptation for you, be real with yourself. After you're hanging out with or around non-Christian friends or family, ask yourself, would have I felt comfortable doing that or saying that around another Christian? Be real with yourself. Ask yourself, were you led to sin in any way? Third, a third practical way of living this out is if you do catch yourself being tempted, if it's a hindrance to your obedience with God, maybe you need to pull back some. Okay? I wouldn't say that you should say literally what the psalmist does, depart from me, you evildoer, but maybe not spending as much time around them. If it's at work, maybe it's not eating lunch with that coworker maybe for just a time, or if it's at school, not spending as much time around that classmate. And then a fourth practical way of, of living these verses out um, is by just having Christian friends as well. Maybe your family is filled with unbelievers, or at work, or at school. Make sure you spend even more time with your Christian brothers and sisters where you're going to be encouraged, where you're going to be challenged. And we've actually already seen this concept in Psalm 119. In Psalm 119.63 says, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. Verse 74 of Psalm 119 says, Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. And then verse 79 says, Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. So the psalmist himself makes sure he's around other believers. He makes sure he's around other, others who love the word of God. And that's just one other practical way we can live this out. Also, as we think about these three verses, I want to just give you, just very briefly, I want to give you a um, biblical example of this. Some of you might be familiar with uh, the king uh, in the books of um, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles named King Jehoshaphat. Um, and the example I want to bring out from his life, though I'm just going to share about briefly, it's actually a negative example of this very thing I'm talking about and, and the psalmist is um, an example of. It's a negative example of befriending and working with those who do not have a relationship with God, those who do not love God in his word. Jehoshaphat, he was a godly man. He valued, he loved God's word. He even sent out people in his kingdom to teach the word of God uh, to his kingdom. But on the flip side, King Jehoshaphat is said to have made a marriage alliance with Ahab, who, who was a wicked, he was an ungodly king. 
In Jehoshaphat, he even worked closely with Ahab in battles, and he made ships with Ahab's sons. And um, a prophet actually confronted Jehoshaphat, and I'd ask, um, if you're willing, just keep your finger in Psalm 119 and turn to 2 Chronicles 19. I want you to see several passages that show not necessarily how Jehoshaphat was negatively impacted by this relationship, but how we see his family impacted. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles 19, 1 through 3, and we'll just be here for a short time and then flip back to Psalm 119. 2 Chronicles 19, verses 1 through 3, we see Jehoshaphat is confronted by God and his prophet for um, this relationship uh, with unbelievers. 2 Chronicles 19, 1 through 3 says, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. But Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, and this is the key question, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the Ashtoreth out of the land and have set your heart to seek God. So God and his prophet confront him and he says, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? He asks him, is this the right thing to do? And then the answer is no. And we see Jehoshaphat gets a punishment for this. And even more so, it's his family, his, his kids that are affected by it. Look a couple chapters over at 2 Chronicles 21, verse 6. We see how his son Jehoram is impacted. 2 Chronicles 21, verse 6 says, And he, that's Jehoram, Jehoshaphat's son, walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For... The daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So Jehoshaphat relates with Ahab. He makes a marriage alliance and has his son get married to Ahab's daughter. And we see this leads his son astray uh, from the Lord to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this even affects his grandson, Ahaziah. If you just look a chapter over, 2 Chronicles 22, 2 through 5, we see how this negatively impacts his grandson. It says, Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Italia, the granddaughter of Omri. And then it says this in verse 3, he also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor in doing wickedly. So that's Ahab's daughter. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done, for after the death of his father, they were his counselors to his undoing. He even followed their counsel and went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, to make war against Hazael, king of Syria, Ramoth, Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. So the point I want to show here is here we get a biblical example of someone who was a godly man. He, he loved the word of God. He treasured the word of God and even want, wanted people to be taught it. But we see he, he has a relationship with Ahab and even Ahab's son, and this ultimately Negatively impacts him, but it especially negatively impacts his son and his grandson, and we see how it leads them uh, into sin. So you can flip back to Psalm 119 now, and, and these three verses that we've begun with shows the distance that is put between the psalmist and those who don't follow the word of God. As we come to verses 116 and 117, we're going to take them together. This is the middle of this, this section, and we begin to see how the second half mirrors uh, the first half as 116 and 117 are very, very similar. 
in that both, we find the psalmist asks God to help him and sustain him. Look with me at Psalm 119, 116, and 117. It says, Uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let, let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. So verse 116 and 117, they start with different words, but they mean the very same thing. If you look back at verse 116, it says, uphold me. And then 117, uh, in our English translations, a very similar um, phrase, it says, hold me up. In both of these phrases, uh, it's speaking of God sustaining him, God helping him, God aiding him in some way. And we might ask, what does he need help in? What does God need to sustain him in? We see in these verses, and, and from the whole of this section, ultimately it's in his fight to obey God's word. The psalmist seems to also be speaking of his suffering. If you look back at verse 116, it says, Uphold me according to your promise that I may live. And then in 117 it says, uh, hold me up that I may be safe. So in one sense, it seems like he's talking about his suffering, uh, being able to endure through it. He needs help from God. But I, what I want to focus on, and I think it's the focus of this section, is that he's asking for help in that he could obey the word of God in the midst of those who do not follow uh, the word of God. And he expresses his desire to do so um, and explains his request for help from God in two ways. One negative, one positive. Look again at verse 116. It says, Uphold me according to your promise that I may live. And then here's the negative way he expresses this desire to obey. He says, And let me not be put to shame in my hope. The psalmist is speaking here of failing in his obedience. He's speaking of falling into sin and he's asking God to support him, to sustain him so he doesn't do uh, this. Then look with me at verse 117. We see this is communicated uh, positively. It says, hold me up that I may be safe. And then here it is. And have regard for your statutes continually. So the psalmist is asking to support him, to sustain him so that he would be concerned about and have his eyes on the word of God. And don't miss that word continually. If you look there at the end, it says, and have regard for your statutes, not just sometimes, but continually. He is saying, God, help me do this always. In every situation around every person, help me be concerned about your word in that I obey it. So in verses 116 and 117, the psalmist realizes something very important, and that is that he can't do this on his own. That he can't accomplish this on his own. That it isn't enough just to reject the ways of the wicked or to, to keep a distance for, from them. He can do all this. He can do all he wants. He can strive not to sin and fight temptation. But it's ultimately impossible without God. And he shows this in verse 116 and 117. So after the first three verses, I gave you some practical ways of doing this. And here I want to add another practical way. And that is to pray. Pray, pray as you interact with unbelievers, especially if it's your family, people that you spend a lot of time with, or if it's someone who you rub shoulders with at work or at school, pray that God would help you to remain obedient when you're around them. Pray that God would help you to avoid living in the way uh, that they might live. Look to God for support and strength 
to not sin when you are with unbelievers. We'll move on to verse 118. And we saw back with one, verse 115 how the psalmist treated and viewed the word of God and now, or treated and viewed those who don't follow the word of God. And now we see how God treats and how God views those who do not follow his word. Look with me at Psalm 118, 119, 118. It says, You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. We're told what God does with those who don't follow his word. The psalmist says God spurns. This word spurn speaks of treating something as worthless. It can speak of throwing something away, or even it's used in the book of Lamentations as stomping on something. Lamentations 1.15 says, The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. And then here we get the word that's found in our passage. It says, The Lord has trodden, stomped, as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. So we see God's punishment here for those who don't have a relationship with him, with those who have lived a life of sin, a life for themselves, rather than following his word. God will throw them out, is the picture given here. He takes those who are high up, they're in lofty positions in the world, or at least they're high up in their own minds, he treats them as something that is useless. He will punish them one day, which seems harsh. It seems mean what we get here in this verse and the next. But these are people who have had no care in the world for God and his word. They've persecuted his people. They've hurt others. It's not that they just slipped up one time, but they have lived a life of rebellion against God. And the reality is that all those who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ and have been saved by him from their sins are living this life here of rebellion against God. We're told something else about these people in the second line. Look again with me at verse 118. It says, You spurn all who go astray from your statutes. And then we get this phrase, For their cunning is in vain. The word cunning speaks of being deceitful telling lies, and then the word vain literally is the word for lying or something that is false. So by saying for their cunning is in vain, the psalmist is saying literally they fooled themselves. These wicked people, these unbelievers, these evildoers have deceived themselves. The psalmist is saying they in deceiving others, in lying to others, trying to get ahead they have deceived themselves. They thought it would get them ahead. They thought it would bring what they wanted. They thought it would bring happiness and satisfaction. But rather, as we're told in the first line, it leads to their punishment and destruction. They fooled themselves, thinking they were getting ahead. So what do we learn from this? What we learn from verse 118, I want to wait just one moment because verse 119 adds on and, and says something very, very similar and then after verse 119, we'll kind of bring out some application. So look with me at verse 119, where we see this end of the wicked is repeated. And the psalmist declares something he already declared. It says in Psalm 119, 119, All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. Verse 119, technically, it goes along with 120. Um, but it also connects very much so to verse 118. As it speaks of this end, it speaks of how God handles 
those who don't follow his word, those who don't care about him and live a, live a life apart from him and his ways. The psalmist says, God discards. It says, all the wicked of the earth you discard, which is speaking of causing something to disappear. It's going to cause the wicked to disappear, and he compares this to dross, which dross is a piece on metal uh, when it's being worked on that is gotten rid of. They get rid of that piece. They don't use it. They throw it out is the idea here of how God will make the wicked disappear. So we see a huge difference between how God treats his people, treats those who love his word, and how he treats those who rebel against him. For, for those who don't love the word of God, in verses 116 and 117, we saw he helps, he aids, he sustains his people. And now here on the other hand, we see this difference with these unbelievers, he tosses them away. He punishes them for what they have done. We see a difference in how God treats his people and how he treats those who are not. And we see the psalmist looks upon this and it drives him even more to love the word of God. Look again at verse 119. It says, All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, because of, for this reason, I love your word, is what the psalmist is saying. Because of how he sees um, the end of the wicked, how God treats, how God views and looks at those who don't follow his word, it drives the psalmist to love the word of God, to treasure it even more. So application, I'll have several points. The first point of application that, is that we should take to heart what we're being told about the wicked here, about those who don't follow the word of God, and we should let it drive us to love God's word even more, to delight in it, to follow it, as it keeps us from this end that the wicked get. It keeps us from going down the path of the wicked, which ultimately leads to punishment and destruction by God. The second point of application uh, we get from verses 118 and 119 is that this should sway us from envying the lives of unbelievers, of looking at unbelievers' lives and thinking uh, that they seem to be doing well, they seem to be happy, even thinking that you'd like to do some of the things that they seem like they're getting away with. But the reality that we find here in our section of Psalm 119 is that they don't get away from it, or they don't get away with it. It seems like they do, but they don't get away with it at all, as we see ultimately the punishment that will come for those who have rebelled against God by God. The third point of application, and, and this leads us into our last verse, is that we see here that there's no need to fear these people. The wicked, these people the psalmist has been talking about over and over and over again in Psalm 119 who are trying to destroy his reputation. They're lying about him. They literally try to kill him. We find in verse 118 and 119, they're not ultimately the ones in control. It may have seemed like that, but they're not in charge. Things aren't ultimately in their hands, but it's in God's. God is ultimately the one who's over their lives and in control of their lives as he will bring them to their end. So there's no need to fear these people, but we're going to see in our last verse this morning that there is something to fear. We find what the psalmist fears, and that is God and his word is what the psalmist feared, fears. If you look with me at verse 120, Psalm 119, 120 says, My flesh trembles for fear of you. 
and I am afraid of your judgments. So we're told in the first line that the psalmist fears God, and then in the second line we're told that he fears uh, God's word. And often, um, especially in the Old Testament, when this word fear is used in relation to God, the idea is um, of an awe, of a standing in awe of God and a respect uh, for God. And that's certainly here, but I think there's a, even something a bit more strong that the psalmist is saying when he says, uses this word fear. Look again at verse 120. It says, my flesh trembles for fear of you. So it's not just an acknowledgement or being in awe of God in his mind, but the psalmist is actually talking about something physically. Something that happens to him physically, he says, my flesh trembles, which literally um, can be translated, my skin has goosebumps. It can speak of shaking physically because you're scared. It speaks of your hair standing on end because you're that scared. That's the type of fear the psalmist is experiencing. So the psalmist seems to be saying more than he's just in awe, but that he recognizes that God punishes the wicked, that God doesn't deal with sin and rebellion lightly, and it has caused him to be scared in the sense that he's scared of what God is capable of, that he does not want to fall into sin or turn away from God and meet God's punishment. I want you to remember, though, and I, I alluded to this when I was at verse 114, that we're told this in verse 114. Another way he views God, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. So the psalmist said in verse 114 that God is his refuge, his protection, and now he's saying he's scared of God. It seems like the realization of what happened or happens to the wicked has led him to this. He began by viewing God in his word as his protection, and now he's fearful of God and his word. In our minds, these two things don't seem together. If you think about something you're scared of, so you can think about your greatest fear or something that would give you goosebumps or, or make your hair stand up on end, you probably don't feel safe with that same thing. But the psalmist is saying here that God is his protection, but he also fears God. Here in this section of Psalm 119, I don't believe we see these two things as competing. I don't even think that the psalmist has changed his mind or his experiences have changed how he views God, but rather we're to see the psalmist viewing God and his word like this at the same time. That in one sense, God and his word is what he runs to, what he looks to for comfort when he's in trouble. He looks to for help, but at the same time, he realizes this God and his word are far greater than him. That this God doesn't take sin lightly. He fears this God and his word and it drives him to obedience, to seek to follow what he demands, to run away, to not run away, but to get closer, to seek to be more in line with what he has said. And we have this, this balance, it's not only here in this section, but I think of other um, passages in the Bible that we see this very same thing. Think about the book of Joshua, where in chapter 7, Achan sins, and we're told that God is literally furious, not with just Achan, but all of Israel. He's furious, he's enraged because Israel sinned. But on the flip side, we see in the book of Joshua uh, a God who's fighting for Israel, a God who's helping them. He's their protection. So these things certainly do go together, as we see here in Psalm 119. 
And as we think about this last verse of our passage and how the psalmist views God in his word compared to the wicked um, that we've talked about, we see yet another difference. Another difference between the person that loves and follows the word of God and the person who doesn't love God's word and follow it. While the wicked don't fear God, they don't care, they, they aren't concerned, we see that the one who does love the word of God fears God fears his word and wants to follow it. So the application, the question I'd like you to consider is, do you tremble before God and his word? Does God, how God treats sin and punishes those who do not submit to him, drive you to move closer to him and to follow his word? That's what we have here, a balance that we should, on the one hand, find comfort in God. We should run to him for help. We should look to God and his word for protection and trials and persecutions, but at the same time, we shouldn't think of God as a softy, as a pushover, but God expects us to submit to him, to obey his word, and he punishes those who do not. How God views sin and is angered by sin and judges sin should propel us into living lives of obedience to his word. My question is, is that the case for you? So we've seen the believer and the unbeliever side by side in this section in a way that we haven't seen in Psalm 119 yet. We see the one who has been saved from their sins and is seeking to obey God alongside the one who is not saved and does not obey the Bible. We see the psalmist has shown first a distance, the distance he puts between himself and them, how he relates to them. And then second, we've seen the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. And we see there surely is a difference. There's a big difference for the one who's been saved from their sins, has a relationship with God, to the one who does not. And I'd like to close, close this study of this section um, with a plea to the one sitting here this morning who has not been saved from their sins, who has not sought to follow God and his word. Today, if, you, if you've been listening, I haven't, try, haven't been trying to beat you down or, or been, be harsh with you, but this passage uh, confronts you with the reality that you are living for yourself. You're not right with God, and your end is one of destruction, of punishment. Not because God's mean or harsh, but because you have rebelled against him. And I would call you today to believe in God, to ask him to take away your sin and to start living your life for him to love his word, to follow it, as we see in this section of Psalm 119. Let's close with a word of prayer. God, I just thank you for your word. And Lord, as it sometimes brings some, some pretty confronting uh, truths to our lives, Lord, I pray that you would just convict us from this passage, that you would um, bring about change in our lives. And even I pray especially for the ones sitting here who has never believed in you, does not have a relationship with you, and hasn't sought uh, to follow your word, I pray that you would work in their heart uh, even right now. Even this day as they reflect on this message, uh, bring them to believe in you, uh, to have this relationship with their, which they love you and love your word. And Lord, I pray for us as Christians just to give, give us wisdom as we interact with people in this world on a daily basis, um, realizing that we have a task to share our faith uh, with those who do not believe, but at the same time, um, being careful, watching out, and, and just giving us wisdom um, 
to stray away from sin uh, if we're tempted. And uh, Lord, help us with this. It's a tough uh, task. And um, Lord, help us to ultimately follow your word and continue uh, to, be in, to be obedient to it no matter what. And in your name I pray. Amen.